Hello and welcome to the Joint Venture Podcast, Inspiration Insights. My name is Oliver Carr and I am joined today once again by Robert Leeming, Head of News. Hi Oliver. And by Dila Jibiji, our Senior Infrastructure Analyst. That's right. Hi Oliver. Thanks for having me. We're here to bring you the best of Inspiration's coverage every week. And this week there's been a lot of news to do with fundraising in the renewable sector. Rob will be bringing us the latest on that. And we have Dila, who is with us once again, this time to take us through the policy differences when it comes to nuclear power between the UK and France. We're going to be asking who's ahead and who's behind. As usual, we're going to start with the latest news in the market. And Rob is here for us. Rob, what's been going on? Well, Oliver, there's been a number of big deals this week, perhaps the biggest um, related to Next Energy Capital, announcing that they've reached a third clause on its Next Power ESG fund after raising $595 million. The news, when considered on its own, is perhaps run-of-the-mill um, for a busy fundraiser like Next Energy. But when put into context, the fund's third clause comes just six months after its first, and that makes it much more remarkable. Um, so the fund has exceeded its target of 500 million is now working towards a hard cap of 1 billion and the money that they've raised is being invested into unsubsidized new build solar plants in the UK and the the company's project pipeline has already acquired its first five utility scale solar assets with a combined capacity of 269 megawatts so the reasons for the for the fund's success were numerous. Um, Perhaps the biggest was the fact that they got a number of high quality and high profile investors such as the UK Infrastructure Bank who of course do excellent due diligence on the fund and that um, kind of convinces more investors in turn to come on board. Um, Most of the investors in in the round were UK based um, and UK pension funds but there were a number of um, foreign investors involved as well, one coming from the Gulf and another one coming from Japan. So as as with this success under the belts, Next Energy is um, looking to announce more clauses soon and is likely to be its hard cap well ahead of the two-year investment period that the fund currently has. So I know that you were able to get some of the early scoops on this story this week, Rob, and I wondered if you had any insight into the sort of investment strategy behind these decisions and where Next Energy is planning to go next. Well, yes, we, we were talking about, about you know progress in the future. As to the question of whether Next Energy would ever make changes to its kind of proven winner of an investment strategy, the answer appears to be no. Um, but core location does appear to be increasingly attractive to the company, and um, that is a, a direction that they look likely to move into in the future. Um, as you mentioned, I spoke to Shane Swords, who is the company's investment director, and he said that at the moment um, the fund is, of course, concerned with you utility-scale UK solar projects. But in terms of widening this, while being one of um, the country's more conservative investors, um, where it makes sense and where it can deliver value for investors, they would look to co-locate solar and storage, and they have a track record of doing this in a couple of other funds that they've put together. Well, thank you very much for that scoop, Rob. Um, what else have we got in the news this week? Um, well, coming to other fundraising news, um, this week the UK-based electric vehicle developer EVC 
which I don't think we've covered in the past, um, won a 165 million um, investment from Denham Sustainable Infrastructure. Um, EVC is aiming to use some of that new investment to install up to 100,000 EV charge points across the UK by 2027. And they're also looking to secure some big portfolio opportunities with large landlords. In the past, EVC has focused on providing convenient destination charging options for its customer base and it looks like they're going to continue that in the future but on a bigger scale with this new investment so it's been a week of news in the fundraising world uh i think we've got some more news from uh one of the french funds yes this one is from our green invest and um this week another clause this time a first clause um on their multi-million euro africa focused fund they um, announced they raised 87.5 million out of the 100 million target that they have in place and they're expecting to announce more clauses soon. Um, The fund is aiming to bridge the funding gap within the African renewable energy market um, by direct lending and asset-based debt facilities for regional and international developers and commercial and industrial companies to develop solar energy infrastructure across Africa. Um, The initial focus is going to be on the uh, West and Central Africa. Um, They're going to look into Ghana and Nigeria um, and the fund will offer long-term currency financing with support from the International Development Association's private sector window local currency facility which will act to reduce foreign exchange risk. That's a very interesting story. So this fund may not have reached that 100 million euro funding target, but it certainly shows that there's a growing willingness from investors to uh, go towards uh, African infrastructure projects where perhaps that was a bit more taboo in the past. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're raising quite a lot of money quite quickly, not quite as quickly as Next Energy, but you can see things um, kind of hotting up there, you you would uh, kind of imagine from, from those figures. It's not just been the renewable projects, though, that have been seeing some closes this week. Uh, what have we seen from InfraDebt? Uh, no, there was a, a massive um, clause in Australia this week from, as you mentioned, the infrastructure debt provider InfraDebt, which raised one billion Australian dollars. And um, the fund, of course, is backed by my, Mike Cannon-Brooks, who's a bit of a controversial character in Australia. He's a bit of a kind of evil tech billionaire and um, you're allowed to say that on the podcast what's he gonna do to me he's one of the big australian moguls he is a big australian mogul and he's pouring his money into this um, battery fund um, and they're now going to invest in a two gigawatt portfolio which includes a big battery project that's being developed near canberra by neowen uh, which we've written, written about before and another project that is being developed in Queensland. And um, they're going to announce more projects that are in the portfolio in the coming weeks. So Cannon Brooks has been using his uh, Grok vehicle, I think, to back some of these deals. Uh, so w- what exactly is Grok? Well, Grok is the uh, vehicle that Cannon Brooks uses to invest. Uh, so in March of last year, he invested 200 million Australian dollars into um, InfraDebt. Um, which they've then used to invest in, in numerous battery projects. InfraDebt has backed nearly 30 renewable and, and green infrastructure projects since then uh, and is likely to back much more in the future. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, Colin. It's now time to turn to 
the nuclear industry once again. So we've been covering nuclear deals in an increasing part of our energy coverage this year as a part of the energy transition. Nuclear has a place and Dealer has very kindly been looking into the differences in approach between the UK and France when it comes to nuclear power. Hi, Dealer. Hi, Oliver. So what have you found? Yeah, so uh, a lot's been happening, actually, in the nuclear energy industry. And that's largely also due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Obviously, that's kicked everything off a little bit uh, last year and it's been pushing uh, nuclear energy into the limelight once again after falling in and out of favor with the governments, with various governments over the decades. Um, Even countries that have been fundamentally quite opposed to nuclear energy and have been uh, beginning to phasing them out, like Germany and Japan, have temporarily decided to extend existing plans to prevent shortages. In the midst of all of this, France uh, began pushing much bolder and aggressive plans, while the UK, um, on the other hand, is seeing if it can have its own little revival, though it is uh, progressing at a much slower pace compared to its French counterparts. So we've had a little bit of coverage of UK nuclear in the past. I wonder if you could bring us up to speed on kind of where, what the lay of the land is in the UK right now for nuclear developments. Sure, yeah. So currently the UK's um, ageing, really. Nuclear stock makes up around 15% of the country's energy generation. However, that will be quite a lower percentage in the coming years just because uh, all but one will be decommissioned by 2028. So that's putting the government uh, at a bit of a pickle there. So it really needs to act sooner rather than later. Well, the government has actually been targeting uh, an increase in nuclear generation from 7 to 24 gigawatts over three decades, um, which would also then be covering 25% of the UK's energy demand. These plans had been established by former Prime Minister Boris Johnson last year, uh, which were proposing to build eight new reactors this decade. Increasingly, this sort of infrastructure is also considered to be quite critical because it can step in where weather-dependent methods such as wind and solar aren't able to produce enough power. The price of continued stalling in the UK's nuclear ambitions, however, was exposed um, earlier this year when the national grid started paying households to cut their electricity usage as it aimed to reduce the strain on energy networks with suppliers offering discounts to customers um, if they were willing to turn their energy usage down during peak times. So we've got these big ticket nuclear projects in the UK, which we are always hearing about, Sizewell C and Hinkley Point in particular. Where are we with those right now? Yeah, so Sizewell C is one of the next proposed constructions that is um, projected to power up to 6 million homes, um, producing 3.2 gigawatts of nuclear power. Um, This would be a huge boost to the UK's energy ambitions and it would help to cut its reliance on overseas suppliers to meet its needs as well. Um, This was also the first direct government investment since 1987, which was Sizewell B. Currently, um, 50% of its stakeholders are EDF um, and the other 50% UK government um, and was also initially backed by £700 million in public funds. The costs are currently estimated to be between 20 and 35 billion pounds. Okay, and what about Hinkley Point C? Yeah, Hinkley Point C uh, is a construction already underway. It started in 2016. However, it's currently um, a little bit stuck just because costs have been uh, estimated to now uh, range from 26 billion to 33 
billion pounds, um, particularly because this industry is also vulnerable to inflation and the construction has been delayed by two years at this moment. So we've got these really big projects which have seen problems and there are potential solutions out there. Uh, we've looked at, in the past at SMRs, small modular reactors, as a potential uh, way out for the UK nuclear industry. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about what you know, what they are, how do they work? Yeah. Um, so alongside nuclear plants, really, SMRs, small modular reactors, can be seen as a crucial tool in battling uh, the energy crisis and climate change um, as well. So these are advanced nuclear reactors that have a power capacity of up to 470 megawatts per unit, which provide around a third of the capacity of a traditional reactor. So if you just break it down quite simply small, obviously meaning a fraction of the size of conventional nuclear power reactor, it also needs a smaller footprint as well. And then it's also modular, so it makes it possible for system and components to be factory assembled and then transported as a unit to a location for installation it's cheaper that way, um, and it can also be deployed incrementally to match increasing energy demand. These, however, are currently only in operation in Russia and China. In the West, these are mostly in the designer licensing phase and are not yet commercially sold. So in the UK, the SMR cause has been championed, I think, mainly by Rolls-Royce, who are looking to lead the way in the UK market for producing these small modular reactors. What do we know about how that work is going? So Rolls-Royce is definitely a potential leading player in the field. However, its plans are facing delays for its SMRs due to some funding concerns, as ministers have not been able to agree on a funding deal as of yet. Its designs are for those 470 megawatt plants, as I mentioned, and these would come at a cost of around £2 billion, each side powering 1 million homes. If the government agreed, they could start building factories, commission supply chain contracts and agree export deals. But there's just not been a sign-off yet. The Treasury is reportedly not prepared to sign off on any orders or significant funding until the technology has received approval from the Office for Nuclear Regulation, which is not expected to come in until 2024. Rolls-Royce's new CEO, Tufan Arginbilgic, also said that the company's small modular reactors could play a significant role in net zero uh, goals for the UK, as well as ensuring energy security. However, there needed to be a sense of urgency for the UK government to commit to orders of these reactors. So a lot of industry leaders are really calling upon the government to pursue SMRs with urgency and are believed to be um, and consider them to be a crucial supplement to nuclear fleets and overall energy security. So there are certainly problems and delays, as you might expect with any kind of new technology as it's coming to market. But what has the government been doing to support SMR developments? So there's been a couple of uh, government actions and announcement, obviously. Um, so last year, as I mentioned before, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced the government body, the Great British Nuclear body, which was tasked to deliver uh, the next generation of reactors along with SMRs. However, it's been said that its launch has been delayed due to funding and scope disputes between the Treasury and the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero, which has been preventing to secure Britain's long-term energy capabilities. Um, that being said, the government is also investing in new technologies through the 385 million advanced nuclear fund, including 210 million towards the Rolls-Royce SMR program. Okay, so that is the view of the nuclear industry in the UK. 
France is taking a very different view. Obviously, France has had a very different experience with nuclear energy over the years. Can you give us some of the background there? So in France, there's an entirely different picture emerging, really. So historically, it's been a net exporter of electricity with the biggest European nuclear fleet. Um, However, France has had a historically bad year in 2022 as its atomic output dropped to its lowest level since 1988 and the French energy giant EDF posted an annual loss of 16 billion pounds. Atomic energy typically provides about 70% of the electricity capacity in France and more than half of its 56 nuclear reactors were shut for repairs or maintenance last year. These are now mostly back to normal and operational. It's also been spurred by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Russia falling away as a tenable energy source. And Macron has also announced that France would be looking to build six new generation reactors by 2050, potentially even adding eight more. This, by the way, marks a 180 shift in his policy toward nuclear energy when during the start of his presidency, he promised to reduce the share of nuclear in the country's energy mix. Okay, a very different situation there. And with Macron moving towards this position of, you know, he wants his nuclear renaissance. What steps are they taking to improve the situation? Yeah, there's actually a few things it's doing. So France is overall led by a multi-year energy plan laid out in its Programmation Pluriannuelle de l'Energie, the PPE, um, which is a roadmap that is meant to identify the country's priorities and function as a guide for public and private investments. So this PPE will ultimately help to determine the number of reactor shutdowns and constructions as it is working toward France's goal to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. Quite recently, the French state has also approved the acceleration of new construction near existing sites. And the CPN, which is the Nuclear Policy Council that is headed by President Macron, those reviews are underway and will also be added to the PPE directives. This new program is also expected to include the development of SMRs with the intention of having one in operation within the decade. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, um, So France has also been lobbying within the EU. What has it been up to? Yeah, just this week, actually, there's been a new alliance formed within the EU. So France's energy minister has met with 11 of her European counterparts in Stockholm to discuss the possibility of a nuclear alliance, which is now come together. So what's the purpose of this energy alliance? Yeah, so the objectives are set as um, promoting research and innovation. It's meant to help set a uniform safety rules uh, in place in accordance with the best international practices. It's looking to reinforce international cooperation in developing EU nuclear capacity. It's also looking into SMR reactors, skill developments, authorizations of facilities, That being said, this alliance actually causing a bit of tension within the EU. Um, Italy, for example, was uh, invited to this alliance. However, it did not sign the declaration. Sweden decided to stay neutral. Others weren't invited at all. And meanwhile, France is also facing opposition from other countries like Germany. So it's, it's driving a bit of a wedge in the EU nuclear energy strategy. We were reporting just last week on the EU's new approach to, uh, for example, green hydrogen standards, where this nuclear alliance led by the French in the EU are really starting to push forward this idea that nuclear can be green, nuclear should be um, accepted as a you know, potential avenue for a lot of these subsidy investments for, a, for example, a fuel production plant is allowed to run on 
nuclear energy plus renewable energy now and it still counts as green. So I think that's kind of a very tangible effect in the policy outcomes from discussions and groups like this. It's just sad that we can't be a part of it. Well, is, is it too much well, to it do com- it twice? It, it comes back to everything, doesn't it? You know, it does. Yeah, France is, is steaming ahead and, and has the support of the EU. Where we're kind of flailing around. France is also hoping to shape the language in upcoming EU laws in its favor, such as in the Green Industrial Act, which is meant to be the response uh, from the EU to the US's Inflation Reduction Act. For instance, the proposed Net Zero Industrial Act precise scope remains to be defined, which means that it could still include nuclear energy as part of its goal to provide a simplified regulatory framework for production capacity, said the European Commission. Um, Opportunities like these are what France will be looking to capitalize on as it is continuing to push forward its nuclear energy strategy. So where does that leave us? So I think it's quite clear that a dual pillar strategy of renewable and nuclear energy cannot be avoided at this point, especially with within the current geopolitical climate for an energy secure future. Nuclear plays a critical role because it provides a consistent source of energy supply. Unlike solar and wind, it isn't weather dependent and can help bridge those slower energy days. Particularly as industry leaders keep stressing that a pipeline of projects will be much more cost effective and reliable further delays will work against national international climate goals. However, this requires fast and firm action from governments, especially in the early stages of reactor construction, in order to reassure investors and incentivize their participation. And I think that's the biggest difference between the UK and France, is in their attitude and commitment to nuclear, which will be crucial in attracting the necessary investment from the private sector. Thank you so much for that, Dila. It's a really important question. Is nuclear green? Is it sustainable? Is it environmentally friendly? I know that these questions can cause arguments in uh, these kind of circles. So if you have an opinion on this, why don't you write to us at podcasts at inspiratia.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, that is all we have for today. And I'd like to once again thank Robert Leeming. Thanks, Oliver. And Dila Jibichi. Thank you, Oliver. We are very excited to announce that very soon Inspiratia shall be publishing our European PPA data report, looking back at the last year in PPAs in the top markets of Europe. We'll be releasing that soon, and the report's main author, Chenwa Chintu, will be coming onto the podcast next week and talking us through the main findings. So stay tuned for that and keep an eye on the Inspiratia website in the coming days for that report. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.